Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi everyone, I'm Leanne Levers. Welcome to another episode of the Dope Black Woman podcast. And today I am so excited to have this amazing Dope Black Woman on the podcast with me. She is literally, she epitomizes what Dope Black Woman is all about. This multifaceted woman who does everything and so much all at once. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for jumping on the podcast with us. We're excited to have you. So as I said, at Dope Black Women, we are all about multifaceted women and allowing black women to have a safe space to kind of do whatever they want to, however they want to do it, to express every emotion that they have, to just be their authentic selves. And you seem to do so much. You're a strategist, you're an activist, you're a speaker, you've worked at the White House, you have an Amazon collection coming out, you're a mom, you're a wife. I mean, I'm sure I've missed out a lot of titles, so I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Tell us who Tanika Boyd is. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, So I am Kennedy's mom, probably first and foremost. (laughs) I get the pleasure uh, most days, but sometimes the challenge of... um, you know, raising and watching a human become a human. So I'm really um, just honored and grateful to to do that and be tasked with that journey. Um, I spent 15 years in nonprofit, um, working on like social justice, domestic policy. Um, I was raised by a family who believed that to whom much is given, much was required. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like social justice was the family business, right? It was always our duty to fight um, and to figure out ways to make the lives of marginalized people around us better. Um, Two years ago, though, I was so just like really exhausted with the social justice space just personally. It was occupying so much of my life. Um, that I started making fashion videos on TikTok. (laughs) And um, I was hoping, of course, no one would find me because as an elder millennial, uh, (laughs) my friends were all on Instagram. My mom was on Facebook. So I was like, oh, nobody's going to find me. Um, And, you know, 300,000 odd followers later, I was found. Um, And I also just started making content um, on Instagram and just have really been enjoying leaning in to just this multifaceted life and talking about all the ways I show up in the world. So that's me. 
That is so funny because that resonates so much with my life. I am an older millennial as well. Um, Welcome. <laughs> oftentimes surrounded by people who are a lot younger than me, particularly with dope black women. There are lots of women. We have a broad range of ages, but my co-founder, for instance, is in her early 20s. I'm in my kind of late 30s. Um, so it's really interesting. I also work in public policy and advocacy. And actually, I'm in this space now in my kind of late 30s where I'm growing increasingly frustrated with the social justice kind of sector and trying to think about different things. I've started writing and, um, you know, Dope Black Woman is a great outlet for me as well because it allows me to talk about the things that I'm really passionate about in a way that I think is impactful, which sometimes you can't do in advocacy. Sometimes you can't do in advocacy. You know, there's a lot of like red tape and there's a lot of bureaucracy in, in social justice sectors sometimes. So what was your frustration with the social justice sector? Like where did that, was that just you were becoming disillusioned? Is it just feeling like, because sometimes I feel like there's a win and then something happens and you, it, you take 10 steps back, you know? Yeah, I mean... The public will to be consistently marching towards equity and justice mm. is just the drumbeat goes out so fast. And I just realized there weren't a lot of us that were raised this way. You know, I was cultured to care deeply about the world around me. And um, a lot of people aren't. We live in a very yeah. individual society. And so I think in a lot of ways, it's... Um, it's really community level, like the wheel really isn't there unless it, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, they say in journalism. And so if there's a video, if there's a tape, you know, and that's often how kind of this clicktivism and launching like social media activism really has motivated and helped the movement in a lot of ways. And so, you know, I was happy to be there for those moments, but the 24 hour news cycle, the mm. consistently just like nonprofit industrial complex of low pay. We're fighting for wages for others and we, and we are wage deficit, yep. <laughs> you know? Um, and just, I think the emotional toll as a person who lives with anxiety and lives with ADHD um, and grew up poor, I think, and was like really proximate to trauma growing up. And then to like have to look through videos of police violence and police shooting black people was just, you know, it, it just was a different level of, um, of trauma on my life. And so I wanted to really lean into what it means to live a soft life and mm. void myself of some of the guilt I was facing from this idea of not participating 90,000% in social justice, that there are other ways that I can lean in now as someone who can be an activist and not necessarily work 75 hours a week on yeah. those issues, you know? And so it was about saying, I've actually done, you know, 15 years of this work and I don't owe anyone my life, you know, but my child probably. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I wanted to, you know, what you said actually reminded me of something that Angela Davis said in an interview that I saw several years ago. And she was like, you know, eventually social activists, especially women, because we do take on so many roles, um, often 
you have to transition the way in which you practice activism, right? So, you know, when you're younger, you're out there protesting and then you start working in organizations and then maybe you transition to being a professor or maybe you transition to being, um, to writing and having your work speak for itself through your words. And um, eventually maybe you just end up doing speaking engagements and all of that is still important and impactful, but it's part of your process of self-care in making sure that you can carry on the work in a way that's sustainable for you. So is this kind of transition, kind of a way of you engaging this soft life, as you said, self-care, what does that look like on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I mean, I will say just like being um, a Black American, but more specifically an African American, I occupy this culture of uh, people for whom like martyrdom and, you know, our heroes are dead. Um, and so anything short of that or things that are short of that was always kind of looked down upon in your activism. You know, you needed to be in the street. You needed to be have a bullhorn 24 hours a day. You couldn't be multifaceted. You damn sure couldn't love fashion. Um, you absolutely couldn't consume fashion. You definitely couldn't know the history of like Christian Dior and look at all the documentaries, <laughs> right? Like that was like, um, excuse me. And so I just... I think in a lot of ways, I started when I crossed the threshold of 30, as I marched towards, you know, 40, this idea of like leaning in to all of who I, I am mm -hmm. and accepting myself as a full person that like, I really, really love to travel to the South of France. I also really, really hate um, and think it is so disgusting, the billions of dollars that France takes out of Haiti and mm. parts of like West and Central Africa every single year for the last, you know, 400 years, right? Like I've just learned to like lean into the complexities that occupy me and my thoughts and not live in this binary and also just take space to enjoy myself and to, you know, find pleasures in every day, not just about consumption of items and things, but also experiences travel, of course, a spa, even if it's an at-home spa, <laughs> um, you know, toenails, doing your toenails, um, and also just like outsourcing things that I can outsource yeah. so that I am not also working all these hours and then gu guilting myself into doing laundry, into cooking, into just find smarter systems. Mm. Um, and it, it, ha it has, for me, come over time. And it also has come in a cohort of other Black women, my other peers who occupy different careers. And we've just all been collectively tired. Um, and frankly, we've had to like not tell our mamas because <laughs> my mama is like, you doing what? You got somebody doing your laundry? Not you got somebody in your house? Did you clean up before they came? You know, it's like, you know, it's a, that's a different world for yeah. her generational you know? so, yeah, yeah I, in a lot of ways it, it's really generational um and it's something that i've learned from gen z that you know i'm like i am going to sprinkle that in my life i am thinking about retirement i'm in my 30s but i'm already thinking about retirement like all of those things um and i think i owe it to my foremothers to to rest to rest yeah yeah 
my previous guest, uh, Dr. Shauna Knox, who wrote this book about decolonizing yourself and finding your full or getting access to your full self. And that full self is oftentimes very complex. As you said, me too, and this applies to myself. I like nice things. And um, do you still feel guilty? Is that something that you, takes time to kind of go away? Do you feel like you miss the on the ground work or do you feel like you should still be a part of that? And how far removed do you become the kind of higher up you go in the hierarchy of doing this kind of work? I think one of the challenges for me has consistently been um, guilt. And so it just never fully goes away, mm -hmm. right? Like I've learned to manage my time. I've learned to get the tools and skills and therapists. <laughs> I need to manage my mental health. You know, I worked out today, you know, I don't know how long it's been since I've actually worked out. Um, <laughs> but I, right, like I'm trying to make more space and it is a day, it, it's like a daily thing. Yeah. It's a daily occurrence because at the root of who I am, how I was cultured growing up as a black girl, it was always around hard work. There was so much nobility in hard work. Mm -hmm. um, there was so much like favor in labor, <laughs> if you will, yeah. right? There was just like, um, and I know that stems from this idea that my mother was really stripped of agency because she didn't have access to labor. Um, or the economy, essentially. She always had access to labor, but she didn't really have access to the economy. And so she saw the ability to work for her daughters, essential, especially her daughters, as the ability to move up the economic ladder. And this idea of like vacation and rest, she's like, you're on vacation again? But what about your money? You know, and this idea of white collar work or that work is like, I'm being paid, you know, while I'm sitting on the beach. Like my that doesn't change the scope of my my coins. Yeah. Right. And but I, I will say that the guilt, um, you know, I get better and better every day, but it never fully goes away, right? Because I'm juggling um, you know, a partner, my husband who works full time from the basement. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> and, you know, in New York City, right, so we're, we, we don't have a ton of space, uh, you know, a child, um, you know, managing what is, what is this budding fashion career of mine, and also just the weight and guilt of um, wanting to engage in substance and social justice even more. I think about it all the time. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, you know, you talked about clicktivism. I use the word slacktivism, but they essentially mean the same thing, right? It's this idea that you think you're doing a good job and you're making yourself feel better about clicking um, the donate on the donate button or resharing to your stories, you know, something that's going on, especially now when I think about the, the shooting that just took place and everybody's talking about it. But who's doing anything about it? You know, how much money are you sharing? How much work are you actually doing on the ground to change legislation? And do you feel like there's a danger in slacktivism? And what's the balance between using social media for advocacy or, advoc or activism 
in a way that's sustainable and really impactful versus what we know to be, as you said, clicktivism or slacktivism? I mean, I think overall it's a challenge because there are organizations and nonprofits out there who have some really great conversion rates. They're, mm-hmm. you know, they're converting people who click on a petition, then they're getting them to volunteer and they're moving up the ladder of engagement and they are engaging in really powerful ways around, you know, important issues. But just from like all my years as like a community organizer, as someone who was deeply engaged in policy at the highest level in this country, as like, like as someone who's seen it from many layers, um, if it bleeds, it leads. It is, it is very hard. Uh, people are just like naturally reactionary. Um, and it's just really challenging to get much done Um, outside of a true emergency. I think this gun violence issue is just, um, for me, it is crystal clear, right? As a person who is deeply progressive and is also well-traveled and has been to countries where not even the police have guns. Um, And so the idea of citizens outside of war zones walking around with guns is insane. But in America, you know, it is deeply normalized. It is cultured. Um, Even this crisis, there is a swath of people who are not speaking up. And the reason why they're not speaking up is because this actually is triggering them to go purchase guns. Yeah. It's crazy. I know that sounds insane to the outside world. But in America, it is, you know, people rested on this idea of the, you know, amendment and, you know, they lean on the Constitution by land holding cisgender, you know, heterosexual white men, you know, who were crafting this document with no intention for half of Congress to even be half of Congress. Right. Like the issues are just, um, you know, it is really rooted in culture, you know, and it is the way that, you know, we are reared and we are cultured and we're raised in this country. And I think breaking through the fabric of that culture, culture is really going to be, it's going to continue to be challenging on issues like that. Um, The last thing I'll say on this, because I think it's just, it's such an important conversation is, you know, we reflect on what happened after the death of George Floyd. And, you know, it shifted um, the way we see policy around the world, really, because you know, America is such a powerful um, medium for just like conversations and, you know, Black Americans um, with their activism and just being cultured in activism, Black Americans um, who come from a multitude of diasporas, whether they're multi-generational African-American, Caribbean American, you know, West African immigrants, um, there is access to media here and social media that can really elevate conversations around the world. I saw black Americans engaging for the first time in SARS, the crisis in Nigeria with their um, national police uh, force. And that was just really powerful. You know, that's the same summer of George Floyd. And I saw all these companies that people thought were untouchable, that were being held um, accountable for the ways that they um, do and don't do diversity and equity and inclusion. And, you know, it's going to take more than just one summer of uprising for it to be a long-term strategy. 
but uh, we definitely saw some changes. And I really think it is because the way Black Americans in this country have been cultured around activism. Yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't resonate in those ways across the United States. And I think you're right, actually, what social media has been able to do, especially we saw this with George Floyd. I mean, British culture is very reserved in general, right? We live mm -hmm. a very conservative, I live in a very conservative space. Um, and we're not one to openly discuss politics necessarily. And what I saw taking place was that, you know, because of George Floyd and because of everything else that was happening, there was this sharing of information across the diaspora and black people were able to connect in a way that they had never really connected before and had this shared kind of consensus of we need this change to take place. And even though the the manifestations of institutionalized racism are, you know, are different across the pond, the fact that there is this shared understanding that there is this need for change really did motivate people. I mean, the protests that took place over that summer in the UK were massive and really impactful in terms of actually engendering this conversation for us to be able to have spaces to even talk about, um, you know, the police force, to talk about black maternal health, to talk about so many things that are now at the forefront of our agenda, to talk about immigration. So I think social media in that sense has definitely had a positive impact on advocacy globally. Um, I mean, you can even just look at Arab Spring. Yeah. I mean, social media took down, you know, multi-generational dictatorships that people thought wasn't even possible. Now we can talk about the staying power, right? Yeah. Like there does need to be some orientation around, you know, how do you create um, uh, long-term strategies after that. But, you know, we can't, you know, uh, social media is, is the technology of today. You know, I'm always reminded of when SNCC, um, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee that operated in the Civil Rights Movement in the South, you know, when they came on board and they were telling Martin Luther King and the older heads that they were going to be using phones, you know, <laughs> to organize. And they were like, that is, that is not activism that you are cutting corners, you know? And so I'm just always reminded that we, we, we do, we must use the tools of today in order to reach the people of today. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's a good point. So in terms of your journey from activism to becoming or to expanding your, your interests publicly, where do style, travel, and justice intersect? I mean, they're all things that you love and that you care about, but is there a space where they all fit into a nice puzzle? A nice puzzle, no. A messy puzzle, yes. <laughs> um, I think justice needs to live everywhere. Um, they're just, right, like there's just no world uh, without it, and we have to continue to fight for it, even in the like content creator and in, in digital space and influencer space, when you think about the travel space, most people think of a white guy holding, you know, a Sky Pro or a selfie stick doing these like dangerous activities around the world. Or even when I'm opening a travel magazine, there's a white woman with a basket hat and a white dress, you know, turned to the back. I never see her face, you know, her blonde locks, 
uh, gallivanting somewhere. Um, and Black people need to see themselves around the world, not just as natives around the world, but also visitors around the world. And I think that's so important, but also not just from a racial lens, right? We need to make sure it's accessible for trans folks. We need to make sure it's accessible for queer folks and gender non-conforming folks. We need, to, we need to make sure it's accessible for folks who are living with different abilities mm -hmm. and people just at the intersection of all of those identities, because that's how we make you know, I hate to sound cheesy, but that's how we make the world brighter, right? <laughs> but that's also how we make the world world um, um, safer. And I think the same is true for fashion. I mean, I've never seen something in my life so 1980s antiquated uh, when it comes to diversity in my life. I've never seen anything as bad as this. The fashion industry is decades behind. I mean, decades. I mean, you would be you would be surprised if you saw two dark skin influencers on an influencer trip for a brand. Mm -hmm. I would be shocked. Yep. Right. They might have a light skinned in, uh, black influencer and a dark skinned black influencer. That is the extent of it. Um, I mean, there are brands that are operating out there with. 17 influencers on a trip and they all look the same, the same layer of ambiguity, <laughs> right? The same tan, same thin body. I mean, it is like the diversity is on zero, especially for the amount of consumer dollars that the black community yeah. um, in America, but abroad occupies, even in the luxury space, right? Like I read an article today and they were talking about uh, I think it was on Business of Fashion where they were talking about how the U.S. has now overspent China. But when I look at some of these presentation decks from the highest, you know, luxury houses, Africa's not even on the map. Wow. They don't even have it on. It's like it's like it, they just evaporated it from the map. I mean, and if you've ever been to the African continent, the people stay, you know, luxury down to the socks. Yeah. So it's like I mean, and we know they're flying to like you know, um, Asia and America for that, and also uh, parts of Europe. But I mean, there is there is a space for justice and equity in fashion and travel, absolutely. And I intend to make sure that I'm continuing to have those conversations and push the industry um, continuously. In the next 10 years, as you continue down this journey of activism, but also living your best life as you see fit, what is the one thing that you, what's the one policy change that is most important to you? Mm, the, the most important policy change, I would probably say some form of reparations. Um, I've, I've seen reparations when I was growing up and my dad was on like a street corner talking about it and I was just like deeply embarrassed, right? <laughs> oh my goodness, he's dragging me out on a Saturday um, to talk to the community about what seems like in a lot of ways a niche idea. But I've seen conversations really led by journalism mm -hmm. um, around just the need for reparations to communities that have been impacted not only by slavery, but imperialism and colonialism. Mm -hmm. And just what does that look like in a very practical sense outside of this idea of 40 acres and a mule? But what does that look like in a very practical sense, whether that is like reparational taxes to some colonized countries 
on the continent. I mean, that is something that I would, I mean, I would be in shock to see, but I would, I think would shift the way we see the world in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, even when I'm thinking about Haiti and the fact that enslavers were paid for their loss, right? And the impact that Oh, that yeah, had. I saw that article in the Times. Did you see oh, that? Yeah. yeah. And the, again, even the fact that we're talking about these things and that the Times is picking up something like this in a way that takes a, a stance or has a has a strong position to enlightening people i think is something that we would have never seen maybe like three five years ago um so so i definitely you're right though reparations is something that we talk about all the time but we never really get into like the granular of what it looks like right i'm i'm from jamaica and i you know recently i don't know if you saw the um william and kate were doing their tour and, you know, there's this growing sentiment in the Caribbean that we don't need to have the queen as head of state anymore, that we want to become our own independent republic, that we won't use the Privy Council anymore. And um, and I'm, it, it's, it's nice to see this kind of global consensus. Like, I think everybody's kind of waking up now. And I, again, I can only attribute that to social media and the fact that we're able to share information in a way, you know, just even having access to New York Times online and the fact that we're all able to see the same information and have the same information to start having the right conversations, you know? Um, yeah, absolutely. In terms of TikTok, what is your relationship with TikTok? How did this happen? Because I, as an older millennial, have this aversion to embracing TikTok. I have an account, but I don't use it. Um, but TikTok has a place. And so how did you find it and how did you embrace it? And You know, I went to go follow one of my favorite like Instagrammers on TikTok. And, you know, once you get an account, they, you know, show you things. And so you're just watching, <laughs> watching, watching. I was like, oh, it will be fun. You know, you're in the house in the middle of a pandemic, can't leave the house. Um, a lot of people don't remember, but like the city of New York for like a month, if you left the house um, ex without a mask, you like charge $30. And it was like the summer of the uprising. Yeah, you could be like ticketed. Um, and so I was like, oh, stay in the house, you know? And so I started making videos, but it was just like one, right? I made one. It was about like colorful outfits. I could be red. I could be yellow. I could be pink. <laughs> I could be purple. That was literally the song. And I had my husband like recording me and he stopped it. Then I went to change and he stopped it. It was so yeah. horrible. <laughs> I had so much fun making that video. It was crazy. And then I like woke up to 3000 followers and I was like, Oh wow. Oh my God. 3000 people. What is going on? And so, you know, they were like talking to me under the video and they were like, can you make a video with just red outfits? I was like, okay. And that's literally how it started. Did I think it was cringy? Yes. Um, was I totally embarrassed? Absolutely. Um, are there moments where when I'm about to hit sin, do I still be like, what am I doing? Sure. Um, when my like former like boss or somebody I worked with in the administration is like, um, I found your uh, Instagram. Do I get a little shy still? Absolutely. It never goes away. I think yeah, I mean, the internet for me was like, there were people who were 18 years old. They showed us how to do makeup. 
you know, it was only like seven or eight black ones. We all love them. They were great. You know, I loved watching YouTube, but like the internet was like AOL chat room when I was in middle school. Yeah. Dangerous. You know, MySpace. MySpace. <laughs> black oh my planet. goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Facebook as I was like, you know, um, in college. And it was just like an influencer. You went to go do something substantive and you went to go like move the culture forward. And how was this moving the culture forward? Um, But I just, I love TikTok. And (laughs) even my friends who are still not on TikTok, they're like, I send them TikToks, but they're on Instagram. So they're like, you know, they'll send me something that I saw two weeks ago and I'm like, I already saw that you should get on TikTok. And they're like, I'm not, you know, one of my friends calls it TikTok. <laughs> I'm not getting on the TikTok. <laughs> I love it. It's such a fun place. It's such a fun place. Um, you know, one of the things that we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation, and I think one of the things that our community of women always talks about, right? Is because so many of us wear different hats. You know, many of us are moms, many of us are uh, caregivers, many of us are activists, many of us are working in the corporate sector, but we also want to engage in self-care and we also want to do TikToks and we also want to be influencers. And, you know, there's so many things that we want to do and we try to provide the space for women to be able to do it all. Um, And I remember a former politician, Lisa Hanna, she was on the podcast a few months ago and she said, you can have it all and you can have your cake and eat it too, but you have to be prepared for the calories. So how do you manage all of these hats? Can you have it all? You know, I find that when I ask different black women this question, they have different, very different answers. Um, and so do you feel like you have trade-offs in terms of what you can have, when you can have it, or do you find space to actually just do it all? Um, I would say both. I mean, there's definitely trade-offs. Um, you know, I became a parent at such a young age, but I always tell people, you know, I was 25 years old working, um, in the Obama administration. I had a master's degree. I was married with a kid you know, two cars and a house in the suburbs Um, and (laughs) a government pension. Yeah, Yeah, real adulting at 25, right? But I also was like wearing myself thin. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was, you know, I was completely unhappy uh, because I didn't want to spend the rest of my life doing that. And I wanted to be traveling more and I wanted to live in New York and I wanted to make more money Um, and you know, there was, that's a definite trade-off. I mean, I always say that you can have it all. It just, you have to define what all is Mm. like you, it is your definition. Um, you know, for success in a lot of ways for me, I was like living my mother's dream. Yeah. It was like, you know, making sure you're married, making like all of these things. Um, And I was just like, that is not who I am. I thought that marriage and partnership was like me cooking Um, and, you know, me figuring out the laundry and me um, managing the Excel documents for the house and me. And, you know, I had to lean out. I had to lean out in order to 
both save myself mentally, emotionally, and physically, but also to make space for things that I wanted to do um, and like and love. And for me as a mother, it, it became easier, obviously, the older my daughter became. Also, we got really lucky because, you know, the older we became, the more money we made. And so we had the resources to lean out, right? We had the resources to um, kind of enjoy the luxuries of life and engage in the soft life and in better ways and with, and with more clarity. It's interesting, right? Because even though we're taught as women, I think that, yeah, you need the, to abide by those kind of normative standards around cooking and cleaning. Now we're also balanced with this idea that we have to go out and make money and we have to be independent and we have to be progressive and we have to, and it's, and it's very, uh, it can be, as you said, it can have a real impact on your mental health and you need to learn to, one of my uh, colleagues said to me, even if you can do it all, Leanne, don't ask for help because 100%. when you're flailing and you actually do need help, no one will believe you and no one will think actually she's been doing it for all this time. Why would she need help now? You know, and, and so I try to think about that more and more as I'm getting older and thinking, yeah, it's okay to have a cleaner come in and it's okay to go and get my nails done or spend money on things that I want um, while continuing to to and putting in real boundaries at work as well and not working till midnight or 2 a.m. on on things that are important but your your mental health and your self-care is is equally as important so I'm really it's nice to hear you say that and it's nice to hear you say that actually we can do it all but we just need to define what that looks like for each each of us. What is what does having it all look like for you? Yeah, I mean, this may not sound radical at all, but I think growing up in like a Midwestern, you know, in the United States with these like Midwestern kind of values and living in the Midwest, it was just like really radical for me to move to the big city, right? Like that was unheard of to like go away to college, to move to the big city, New York city of all places. And to like have a child as young as uh, we did and to raise that child in a lot of ways globally, right? Like we are, you know, a couple who have been to 50 countries and our daughter has been to those, you know, over 50 countries with us. And that's been, you know, that's been one of the ways that we've defined what does it mean, right? Like, what does it mean to have it all? What does all look like for us each and every year? Does that mean vacation? That means rest. That means sometimes saying no to some of the social events that, you know, everybody, the who's who is at. I'm like, if I was invited, that's great. You know, that's good enough for me. I don't need to actually attend. I just want to be invited, you know? I want to know I wasn't excluded. Um, I think just also making sure that I'm outsourcing some of the things that I have the ability to outsource, Yeah. Um, whether that is, you know, I told my husband one time, like, you cannot do our taxes anymore. <laughs> we, we are past that stage in life. We need somebody else to come in and do these taxes, right? Like down to the small things, right? Like taxes, finances, laundry, um, having someone to, to clean up. I am a person who doesn't like to clean up and can't stand looking at dirt uh, <laughs> and clutter, but I, 
but I don't like, but I'm not about to do it, right? Like I, I saw my mother uh, work, you know, 12 hours a day and come home and sweep the house. And then she went outside and swept the sidewalk every single day until nightfall. And um, I just have a severe disdain for it. And so I've just learned to like, you know, hire people to help me and to, you know, make sure I had support. Even when I was transitioning to become a content creator, you know, I was getting all these brand deals in my inbox and I was managing them. I was like, this is unsustainable because I was working my full-time job at the American Civil Liberties Union. And I was on the national executive team and just really managing this, this entire, um, you know, team across the country. It was really difficult. So I made sure I got management that took a a significant burden off me. And I was able to make a significant more money just having outsourced some of that work. And so I always tell women, like, in order for you to have it all, you have to figure out ways to outsource things. You have to define what good living looks like for you. You have to define uh, what you want to look like physically, because the world is telling you these things each and every day. And you really have to, you have to figure it out on your own terms. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for saying all of these things. Like, as I said, it's just been so insightful because these are actually, and it's fated. I think, you know, these are so many of the things that I've been grappling with in my own kind of personal life. And it's always nice to be able to, seek advice from someone who is um, in a similar situation and kind of has grappled with the same things and is going through it and navigating it as well. So, you know, thank you for sharing so much of yourself with us today. I have a few quick fire questions. Okay. Um, Perfect outfit for an interview. Oh, always blazer. I'm a two piece girl. Okay. Um, I, I stay away from the all black. Um, I say spice it up a little bit. The item that you use most every single day. Uh, outside of my toothbrush, (laughs) I would probably say earrings. Okay. Favorite holiday destination. Oh, South Africa. Awesome. Worst uh, holiday destination? Panama. The colorism is is beyond. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, fashion trend that you hate the most? Uh, fashion trend that I hate the most? Those clunky, chunky boots <laughs> in, the sum- in the summertime. Your- like, aren't your toes sweating? I don't... <laughs> Well, I grew up on an island, so I'm a a sandals girl all day long, as much as I possibly can. Although now I'm in London, so, um, but the weather is good at the moment, so fingers crossed it will stay that way. And what's your favorite fashion trend right now? I don't know if it's a trend, but it's my favorite thing in fashion, which is high waist, wide leg pants. Oh, I love a high waist. From now until forever. Yep. That's my go-to as well. I love how high-waisted wide leg pants make me feel. I feel so sophisticated. You can dress them up. You can dress them down. Absolutely love it. I love it. Tanika Boyd, thank you so much for joining us on the Dope Black Woman podcast. We are so happy to have had you. 
Um, and we're just going to end with the question of what makes you a dope black woman? I think all the things that I've outlined, you know, just leaning into my culture and all of my identities and, you know, struggling through that um, and showing up in those identities just every single day. I think that's really what makes me dope. It is, it is. And it's very powerful. And it's nice that you're putting yourself out there and sharing your yourself with the world so that other black women can see that it's okay to be every single version of themselves. And I think that's, it's a beautiful thing. And I know so many of the women are in our community are going to appreciate this episode because of it. Um, tell us where we can find you across socials. What do you have coming up in the works? Tell us anything that we need to look out for. I am at Tanika B on all social platforms, except Pinterest. I am Tanika Boyd. So I'm on YouTube, Instagram, and of course, my favorite TikTok. <laughs> um, and you can look out for, you know, my social platforms. I'm going to be doing a lot of content on the impending, uh, impossibly amazing summer that all of us are going to collectively have around the world. And so I'm just excited for my travels and also sharing all the ways that people should be engaging in resort wear and cruise wear and summertime and barbecues and all the things. So I'm so, so excited, obviously, for people to get back together safely. Yes. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, for those of you who are listening, don't forget to share, like, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts from. On Facebook and Twitter, we're Dope Black Woman. On Instagram, we're Dope Black Woman One. We will be back with you next week. Until then, stay blessed and unapologetically black. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.